Before we start this podcast, I was looking through the data and found more than 60% of you who listen to the podcast do not follow the show. So can I ask you a favor? If you have ever enjoyed one of these interviews, please hit the follow button if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share this with a friend. It helps more than you can imagine build my dream of making this show onto the top charts and changing entrepreneurs' lives. Thank you very much and enjoy this episode with Emil Michael. All aboard the MBIT Podcast with Seamus Madan. Emil, thanks for taking the time to join the MBIT Podcast. It's an honor to have you on today. But before we get into Uber and your journey raising billions of dollars for the company, I believe one's earliest years are fundamental to understand who they are as a person. What was it about maybe your childhood that had the most influence on you to where you are today? You know, I was going through, I'm having a kid, now a second kid in about a week. So I was going through all uh, the house stuff and all the mementos that one accumulates over the years. And I stumbled onto like my first bank account or my first paychecks from like selling shoes at a shoe store or working at a snack bar. And, and it sort of reminded me that hey, there's an immigrant ethic that you get uh, a lot of times where your parents kind of come to this country, you've got to succeed. And so that notion of you got to be independent, you got to be self-sufficient, you got to be uh, able to support yourself started at a super young age. So I was looking at these paychecks from when I was, you know, 11 years old. And, uh, and it sort of reminded me that like that ethic is sort of gives you your 10,000 hours, maybe your 40,000 hours over time. It's something that I remember from, from my, from my uh, early ages that got me to where I am today. Do you think, I know sometimes we'll see with a lot of successful people, if they're really successful early in their career, is that later on, they'll just drop off and chill out for the rest of it. What is it about you that's kept you driven from all the way from Tell Me to Uber to now what you're doing advising companies? I would say that, so first I started at Uber when I was 40. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like I hit, I hit uh, the best company that's ever built when I was 25. So who knows what would have happened if that happened. But uh, but generally speaking, even now, post-Uber, why am I engaged? Why am I, you know, not on the beach somewhere uh, or on an island? Um, first of all, they're, they're part of what you first asked with this, like work, this sort of workaholic success mentality, it's sort of you can't shake it if you start with it or I can't shake it. But then also, if you do get into a point in your life, sometimes you're like, okay, well, how do I continue being engaged, keep my mind engaged and give giving back to the community to help build me up. In my case, the tech startup entrepreneurial community, that's really motivating to see young people do or have a chance to do what I did. And that comes in many forms, but that's why I keep going. Yeah. I think um, it's also really important to have somebody along with you that can be able to teach you uh, many different lessons. For example, that person for you was Bill Campbell, who was your mentor, um, who is very famous. He's mentored some of the greats like Steve Jobs, Larry Page, Eric Schmidt, and Jeff Bezos. What was probably the most valuable thing you learned from him as your mentor? He had the most simple sort of life, career, leadership concepts was so unbelievable because there were 
simple and applied. And then he, he would sort of coach you or coach me through how to apply them. And his most important lesson that I took away over the years is lean into hard problems, run into the fire, don't run away from the fire. And human tendency is to avoid problems, to delay, to not have to be messy. It's emotionally, physically taxing. And he's just sort of had the opposite mentalities. Like the way you spend less time and energy is to solve problems before they get big. It sounds simple, but if you think about every day, whether you're a boss and you have an HR issue with the employee and you're like, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to make that phone call. I don't want to read that email. I'm tired. Always lean into hard problems and that'll make you lean into great opportunities too. And those together were the, were the best lesson I ever got from them. And I still apply it today. I know when uh, I was working for a startup leading business development, we had problems come up left and right, especially after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Um, the biggest question, with, especially with startups, is sometimes there's just so many problems. How do you know which ones to focus on? How you prioritize the problems you're going to solve uh, is obviously important, right? You start with the existential. Do you have enough money to make payroll, right? And then you have sort of the urgent but not necessarily important, but you got to solve those today. Like your lease is ending, you don't have a new lease, what do you do? It's not important in the grand scheme of things, but it has to be done today. And then you have important, but not urgent. And those typically are the things that get ignored. The things that are really important, there's no like actual deadline, but if you're not pushing forward to solving that problem or, or attacking that opportunity, that category of important, not urgent, uh, is going to get short shrift. And that's where the strategy happens. That's where the big things happen that distinguish you from your competitors and from others. Um, and so sometimes bucketizing those things have a way of clarifying your time spent. Um, the, the only other point I'd add on to all these things, whether you're doing something that's existential, urgent, not important, important, not urgent, is excellence. If you're going to do something, do it right. And, and, I, all, I've, I kind of give feedback to a lot of entrepreneurs when they write imperfect emails or do a crappy deck or don't describe them. Like, no, 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 perfection is in everything you do because the small things reflect on how how much attention you pay to the important things. And, and the world sees that. Your employees see that. Your colleagues, your competitors, your partners, your investors. And so applying excellence to everything you do across these different priorities is, is really also a key to problem solving in the right way. I want to backtrack a little bit. So after you graduated Harvard, what was next for your career? So I graduated in 1994. And in 1993-1994, Harvard first got email, but you had to go to the Science Center to use email. So we were at the very beginning of the tech revolution. And most Harvard kids are the prestigious job is to go to investment banking or consulting. I went into a tech incubator and people thought it was nuts and it was called the C4 lab. And it was about the convergence of communications, content, computers. I forget what the fourth C was. And it's just because I knew that there was something there and we're at the beginning of something. I only spent a year there, but then I chose to go to Stanford Law School af after that to be in the Bay Area and to be around it. I was still nervous about student loans and, you know, having this immigrant ethos of having a professional career, which provides a backstop. But I basically spent most of my time at Stanford Law, Law School working at startups as well. And I, I was early on with Tony Shea, who ended up being the founder of Zappos. 
working at a company called the Internet Link Exchange that got sold to Microsoft. So it was very early in the beginnings. Now, I didn't get in Google or Amazon or, or those things, but I was in and around those companies early on. Why do you think you decided to go to Stanford Law School instead of maybe the business school if you were really interested about startups and tech and business? In retrospect, I should have gone to neither. Right? <laughs> it, was, it was a waste of time. But I had aspirations to do more politics, government, which was more consistent with a legal career. I was at a tug and pull between public service and, and business. And that was the right answer for me at the time. But I tell you what I did in law school. I took four or five business school classes that were very practical, accounting, M&A, securities, those things, spreadsheeting. I literally took a class called Spreadsheet, how to build spreadsheets. So that was more fully functional when I came out of law school. But either way, I wouldn't have done either of them today. So when you joined Tell Me, which was founded in 1999, that team scaled to 300 people pretty quickly and raised $150 million in the late 90s, which was quite a lot of money back then. But unfortunately, you mentioned that the business model didn't work. Why didn't it work? And how did you prevent the team from maybe going under like a lot of other newly funded tech startups in, during that time? So the, the first business model of Tell Me was pre-smartphone. It was in 99. And the idea was that you used your phone, home or mobile, whatever. You called into a number and you spoke to the internet. You said, give me my Yankee scores. What is the stock price for so-and-so? So it was like Yahoo over the phone. And Yahoo at the time, remember, was the dominant internet provider. That's where you started your day every day. Or kind of like uh, Siri, like we have now. Siri, like we have now. Yeah. So it was, it was a very, it was a precursor to Siri in that, in that sense. And it was in the cloud. We had to build these servers in the cloud. We put speech recognition software. And the idea was we're going to monetize it with ads. Now, no one wants to listen to ads over the phone. <laughs> Seeing ads visually where you could consume the ad and something else, okay, but waiting to hear a 30-second ad, you know, was not something that people want to do, especially because it wasn't <laughs> that actionable. What were you going to do with it? Couldn't right. click and go anywhere. So that didn't work. Good news is we raised the $150 million in August of 20, and the wheels came off the economy two, two months later. So we had this big cash balance. We had to do a riff, unfortunately, and we had to decide what were we going to do with this money to build a real business. So we basically turned it into an enterprise business. So today, when you call Fidelity, American Express, and have the voice recognition system, that's that's Tell Me. Um, and Microsoft ended up buying that. It became a precursor to their competitor to Siri. And it wasn't hard keeping people around because we had to start over. So whoever left it wasn't on the ride, that was fine because we knew it was a long journey coming out the other side of that. I want to dive into that Microsoft component for a second. So... You met with Steve Ballmer and were able to get an additional $300 million for the company. What happened there? Everybody thought you were crazy. How did that happen? The co-founder of Tell Me, who sort of departed by, by the time we, we wanted to sell the company in 2007, was buddies with Steve Ballmer. And to go jogging with him once a year, once a year. And... I had this offer from this other company, which was you know half the price we ended up getting from Microsoft. And I begged Hadi Partovi, now who's, who's, who's prominent in the tech world, I said, please, tell Barmer he's got to look at this company. And he's like, well, I don't know. I don't like talking about this stuff. I said, 
Hadi, for every minute you talked about, tell me there's $100 million more <laughs> that we're going to get for this company. So I want, I want seven minutes. And he joked, but he actually did. He spent time talking Steve through why voice recognition was important in the long term. And, and it obviously was. It took longer than we thought because it was 2007. We flew up to Seattle. Steve Barber is a deal guy. He makes up his own mind. He pulled everyone into the room Super Bowl weekends to do spreadsheets. He took control of the computer with the screen to do the spreadsheet and how this deal could work. It was an amazing experience. And by by the day after Super Bowl 2007, we had a term sheet four days later. It was an amazing experience. What do you think was it about that experience that led to getting a deal closed so quickly? The thing that drives deals faster and a higher value is always competition, right? So it's the there's a collective action problem in M and A. Like, let's suppose your company wants to get sold or or something. Until someone jumps in and creates an auction, so to speak, you're kind of adrift. You're on a random walk, right? Unless you're distressed, in which case you're actually like, proactively marketing your company to be sold. If you're not distressed, but you're still better off in the long term being part of another company, it's a little bit of a dance. But once we had an offer from another company, I had nothing to lose by making sure everyone knew that this auction was happening. And if they wanted to participate, they needed to move fast. And that created that created some momentum. And today, that's still the case. It's just, you know, getting that first step in is the hardest business, 90% of creating, getting to an auction, right? How do you get that first step in? I have a long-term view on business development, corporate development, relationships, M&A. And one of the things I think I tell a lot of people who are starting off in, in the profession in these sort of business jobs, the same thing, which is you don't know relationships you're going to need a few years from now. So go around the world developing them. And by relationship, I'm not talking about steak dinners and ball games. I'm saying develop an intellectual relationship with as many potential acquirers, partners as you potential as you can. Do things for them if you can, favor-wise, whether it's personally or business-wise. And when it comes time for that moment of truth, you have some built trust. You have some understanding of that other organization and why they might want to buy you, how they can pay, who are the important people to convince. And it's it's really hard to think that far ahead. But if you're a strategist, that's kind of what you're doing all the time, right? So after Tell Me exited, you then entered the public sector. So as the special assistant um, to the Secretary of Defense, what motivated that move from private to public? So Tell Me was a long journey. It was eight years uh, with a lot of hard enterprise sales building from 2000, 2000 2007. And then we had to stay at Microsoft to transition. So we're talking till 2009, basically. So it was a 10-year journey, which is kind of a lot um, of life. And I was, you know, working working really hard. And I'd, I'd, I'd done well, tell me, not not as well as I did at Uber, but I did well. And I, I did want to test that instinct I initially had from when I was younger about public service. So I applied to this program called the White House Fellowship Program. It was like 13 a year. It's an awesome program, nonpartisan. And I, and I got into the Secretary of Defense's office, which is the biggest agency in the world, the most money, <laughs> the most firepower, et cetera. So, and, and led by a great leader. Robert Gates is one of my, the all-time great great leaders in America. 
So I did that and I loved it, but it's definitely not something I could do for a career. It's something I could do for actual service. So when you actually have no interest in getting reelected for getting reelected sake or doing, you know, supporting something that you don't actually support because you need donors, whatever, that's the way I'll go into government at some point, some day in the future with no, no, nothing but the good of the people in mind. In the meantime, I'll do business stuff. Uh, but it was a great detour and I learned a lot. Do you think that's a fault of the current system or it's just the way that it is? I do think that one of the things we and a lot of other countries are missing that we used to have is that being in government was a much more honored profession uh, at a certain time in our history. Being a scientist at Los Alamos Labs incredibly honored profession. Um, you know, be, being a teacher was an honored profession. You had all these things which were, which were in and of themselves, despite the, the, the money, they were respected in their community. Now, if you're, you're a scientist at SpaceX or Neuralink or some private company, not only are you making more money, but you also get this honor about people who are like really interested in what you're doing. So in some cases, what's happened is like, the best minds have moved into private industry and therefore the whole government architecture politicians and lifetime people sort of, I think on average has gone down from a quality standpoint. So uh, maybe is it that the, the reason why that honor has shifted is because it's now more competitive in the private sector than it was maybe 10, 20 years ago. Th there's more opportunity in the private sector relative to the public sector for gotcha. great minds. So you were one of the great minds who ended up joining Uber. You spent two years actually meeting with Travis Kalanick, debating on whether or not you should join. Why so long? It was really dumb. <laughs> so so uh, there's no lesson to be learned in that, except that I couldn't get out of my head that this was a block car service for rich people. And I just didn't get... And he, at the time, hadn't thought of Uber X and how you make this a mass market product. So it was the lack of the mass market vision that he had but wasn't articulating, but I didn't have, that kept me so long. In retrospect, even if I didn't know about UberX and sort of what that meant, I should have made the decision based on Travis alone. He and I thought alike, we thought complimentary. I wanted to work with him. And one of those things that people say that are trite are like work with the people you you like. In this case, I really liked him and I wanted to work with him. And that should have overcome any reticence I had about the TAM or the Total Addressable Market um, because I would have been there much, much earlier and had more impact. But, uh, you know, working with someone I liked as much as him was a real, real pleasure and a real sort of something I'll never forget. I know when Travis emailed Mark Cuban, who we've had on the show, to invest in Uber, I believe Mark asked a follow-up follow question over email, and then Travis, after that point, never responded. It seems that he kind of moves on pretty quickly. Why did he keep meeting with you, despite maybe some of the doubts you had about the company? I think that, first of all, we were friends. We liked each other. So we socialized. It wasn't all business every time we met, right? We were just weird on a whiteboard every time we met for two years. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but also I think he respected the way I thought. Um, and just like I did with him, like that whole, that relationship, there was two to tango. You know, we liked being together both intellectually and socially. 
And my resume was so like random that I didn't quite fit into any role there. And he kind of liked that. He was like, I just like the way you think. And if you're flexible enough to just fit in, do the stuff that happens and that needs to get done and you're okay with it, your ego is okay that which it was, you know, then he was happy to keep recruiting me. And I was happy to keep being recruited until I finally said to him, like, I got to join. You know, when I saw UberX in San Francisco, I was like, ah, light bulb went off. And I called him. I said, like, I need to come over. We need to, like, do this deal. Now I'm ready. And, that's and there was a singular graph that got you to join. What was that graph? <laughs> so it was a graph that displayed what we call anti-churn, right? So most consumer companies, you sign up for a service, and the next month, a few people have churned off. The next month, a few people have churned off. You know, revenue's down, but you're getting new customers to fill up the top of the funnel. You're worried about retention, all that. Uber had anti-churn. Like, you used Uber your first time once a month. The next month, it was twice a month, and then five times a month, and 10. So your use graph grew as time went on, which is totally different than most other businesses. So seeing that exponential notion was a game changer for me kind of intellectually. The other thing that happened is about 30 months after you joined uh, or after your first day at Uber, the company raised 15 billion, which was the most out of any private company at the time. Why did you feel that it was important for the success of the company to raise so much capital? Um, a couple of things. So first, we had international ambitions from day one, right? Uber was in 100 countries, several hundred cities, and there was no reason for it not to be. We also had ambitions to do Uber Eats, and we had uh, ambitions to do an Instacart type thing. We, have, we, we just had, and I talk about this a lot, which is ambition is often a determinant of where you end up compared to Lyft. Lyft started at the same time. They actually had an UberX-like product before Uber did. They limited themselves to one country, one service. Uh, our ambition, starting at the same time, uh, makes Uber worth $100 billion. Uber, uh, Lyft is worth four. That's a 25x difference because of ambition. So what do you need to fuel that ambition? Money. And the money was there to get. And I was the, I was going to make sure that Travis had as much fuel in the tank to to ensure that we were firing on every ambition that we had. Some weren't going to work, some weren't. But we were okay with that. Number two, ride sharing has a network effect. Right? Yes. In a city, in any one city, you go there, the more cars, the shorter the wait time, the cheaper the cost. And so being there first and growing fast mattered. And so you needed cash to do that. How important do you think it was for the success of Uber to be first in those other countries? It's very important. So um, it doesn't mean that we Uber lost when it was second, but your chances of winning when you were first were like three, three times, three times as, as much. And it's because partly of this network effect of, when you get established there and you have a network that's efficient, and let's say you can get a ride in three minutes from Uber, a new competitor comes into town, they have a few cars, the wait time's 10 minutes, people just shut the app off and go back to Uber. So that, that time advantage mattered. In that particular segment, it's not true for every business model, but in that business model, it mattered.
What do you think was probably the biggest challenge of actually expanding Uber into an international brand? A few of the things that were really hard were that where the regulations were gray, for example, and Uber launched, consumers loved it. Because remember, you have to imagine what the system was before. It was a taxi system. And no one in the world, no city in the world is that, that people love the taxis in terms of reliability, cost, cleanliness, safety, you name it. No one, no city. But it's because in every city in the world, it's a highly regulated, medallion-oriented system. So Uber comes in in any city, and it's a miracle. Like you push a button on your phone, you have no cash, car comes, you see it coming, you're on a map, you're, all these things. So in most cities and countries, consumer love for Uber would allow us to change regulations for the positive, but not in every city. In some cities and countries, the legal ethos is the opposite. Germany, South Korea, Japan, where the rules are paramount to the interest of the consumer. Doesn't matter that the consumer likes this, the rules are the rules. You have to get them changed before we're going to allow a consumer to try this. And that was really hard for us to, to understand and accept. But still today, Uber, the true ride sharing is not allowed in Spain, Italy, Germany, South Korea, and Japan. Still, it's kind of amazing. And that, those were the hardest problems to try and solve. I mean, nowadays we see a lot of, uh, or at least with Twitter, trying to build an everything app because there's a lot of value in being able to have multiple apps in one app or one company. I spoke with Hussein Faisal, who is building super.com. It allows you to save discounts on hotels, travel, a whole bunch of other things in one platform. Uber has done something similar with Uber and Uber Eats and a few other services like delivering wine and a few other things. Why was that done? What was so important about doing that? So super, let's, let's take the notions of super app and talk about the biggest super app in the world, and that's WeChat in China. And what made WeChat a super app is because before credit card penetration mattered in China, they had a payment system. So people paid each other PayPal style 15 years ago. Every store in China, even the littlest mom and pop, started to do electronic payments with WeChat. So that meant everyone had to have a WeChat account. So then they payments and chat, and then they added all these other things on top of that. We don't have that in the Western world. I think that notion is not possible. There are pos It is possible to have super apps in segments, maybe travel, maybe delivery stuff that you want now. Because remember, when you're ordering hot food or a ride, you kind of that's a now thing. I need it soon. I do think Uber will struggle with groceries because of this and things that are not now. And, and so the benefit Uber gets is when they aggregate things you need now is that those consumers think about Uber as on demand. And therefore, they're al you're allowed to build a platform to put on demand stuff on there. Now, the things that are not going to work on the Uber app that I think are done on there now are rental cars. No one needs a rental car now. And that's why it doesn't work. My guess is they have like almost no usage on. You don't need, typically don't need groceries now. You may need convenience now. Convenience items, but not grocery. People typically plan their week, you know, weekly groceries ahead of time, which is what Instacart has sort of done. They're like, plan it, two-hour windows, you know, repeat orders. It's, it's not a now thing. So I do think there's some 
you, the focus I would have if I were CEO is on the things you want now, where you could use a similar driver network, a similar loyalty program, a similar payment platform. That makes it a super app in the on, on demand segment. What do you think is something that's needed that maybe consumers want now that could be added to Uber? I can't think of anything besides transportation and food, which are of a household budget, an enormous portion. Then you have rent, right? <laughs> like, you know, it's another big category. Um, loans. I don't know what other big, those two are an enormous part of the economy. Like you're like healthcare. There's no, you know, the on-demand healthcare exists today with like some of these teledoc and so on. You don't need logistics for that. That's on-demand without logistics. So on-demand with logistics, I think those are the big categories. You also said earlier that we could have like kind of these micro super apps that do a few things super well uh, uh, in one app. Why do you think we can't have this giant super app like the WeChat in the Western world? I think the the use cases have just been dis, like are already disaggregated in that people have credit cards, people have Square Cash, Venmo, PayPal. People have ACH, checks. There's like 17 different ways to pay in the Western world. And in China, they, that was not the case. The cash, and then you had we, you know, WeChat Pay. And that allowed the penetration and the, uh, to be aggregated, if you will. So if you were a shop, you needed to take WeChat Pay because everyone else was on it. Here, you can say, I'm not taking Discover card. We don't quite do Venmo, PayPal. Like each ve it's so uh, non-uniform, right, that I think it's hard to do that. And when it becomes uniform and you see things like Zelle and some of these other you know, things that are forcing all these payment stuff together, they work independently of any other service. They're not attached to chat. They're not attached to anything. They're just payment services. So we just think about it differently and we've evolved differently from a financial stamp, financial services standpoint. As I was doing some research for the show, I came across Elon's vision a little bit for maybe being able to use your Tesla for full self-driving to go out and pick people up when you're not using it as a uh, another source of income. Do you see that vision as a reality? And if so, how do you think that'll impact ride-sharing companies? I mean, gosh, never bet against Elon. Always bet with Elon. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a stan on him and his companies and the things he says and does. I heard this notion directly from him 10 years ago. Um, he has had this notion for a long time. And he approached self-driving technology differently than Google and everyone else. And I think he's right. He's, he's using video, computer learning, basically, um, where the, you know, Video comes in and you use that to train the models where everyone else uses LIDAR, which is the sensor, like the thing you see on the top of a cruise car. Really expensive. He's doing it cheap. He's getting all his data from all the Teslas he's ever sold. So he's advancing faster. So, yes, is there a world where all Teslas become self-driving and you can rent them back to a network? Sure. A decade from now. The people who can afford Teslas now don't want to rent them out because what happens is, you know, Someone does whatever in the back seat. It's not, they don't need to rent them out. Does the price point come down where it becomes a significant 
income stream to rent it out? Sure, maybe, but then we're, we're 10 years away from that kind of penetration and the tech and that all to happen. As we uh, wrap it up here, there's a couple of things I want to close on. Right now, you currently advise a lot of startups. What do you think is probably the biggest piece of advice you end up giving startups that you advise? The number one piece is still the Bill Campbell lesson. Lean into hard problems fast and with, with decisiveness. And you have to remind people of that all the time because hard problems are hard, right? The reason they're hard is because you're like thinking through all the different scenarios. And, and I still think on average, a faster decision is better than a perfect decision, a slower, perfect decision. So that, that is a theme that comes up a lot. The other theme is I tend to be, and maybe this is why I've never been the founder CEO. I've been the number two or the right-hand man in, in three or four companies is I'm a little more conservative. I like to have more money in the bank. I like to have more runway. I like to assume that not everything is going to go perfect. And that ends up being a good counterbalance with a CEO sometimes like Travis. And even with him, he and I were both like hyper aggressive, but I still still was less aggressive than him um, in a forced conversation and so on. So sometimes I'm that voice for the entrepreneur. And sometimes, for example, when this last economic downturn happens, I, I felt like it did in previous downturns. So earlier on, I was like, hey, we got to batten down the hatches, watch headcount. Most entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, don't believe that until you're well into the cycle. So you're trying six months later. So that's something that in the last couple of years I've had to, to talk to a lot of folks about. You've done a lot throughout the years from being the chief business officer at Uber to selling Tell Me to now advising startups of your own. What's left? What's the one thing you want to accomplish before you die? On the business side, I, I'm hungering for some involvement with the next hyper growth company. Um, and I miss that thrill. I miss the excitement. I miss the, the inventiveness and the ambitiousness of it. So does lightning strike twice in a lifetime? I don't know, but I'm searching for lightning, I guess, is what I was on, the, uh, on that <laughs> side. On the personal side, I got married and had a family late. I'm, I'm 50 now. I'm about to have my second kid next week. So when that kid goes to college, I'll be 70, right? So I, I'm catching up on sort of some of the stuff I missed when I was working 80, 90 hours a week. And then third, for the, for the world, I'm involved in the Innocence Project. I'm involved in local, state, national politics, mostly from a donor advisor. How do I step up that involvement so that I could be part of solving this talent problem in government um, would be sort of another life goal of mine. And whether that ends up, you know, as an elected position or appointed or, or just as someone in the background who's making change happen, that's the kind of third leg of my stool. That sounds like a lot of years ahead to keep on going. And congratulations, by the way, in two weeks when you have your next kid. But yeah, all right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. Thanks, Emil, for taking the time to join. Greatly enjoyed the conversation. We'll have a link posted in the episode description down below for where you can find Emil's LinkedIn and its website. Well, thank you very much for joining. Greatly appreciate it. Great, great to be with you, James. Thank you so much for having me on. 